Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and uh, well, we're basking in the afterglow of two fantastic tournaments, the UK Championship, won for an eighth time by Ronnie O'Sullivan, and the shootout, which has been won by Mark Allen. Two very different tournaments, of course, one an established historic prestige event, and the other a newer sort of upstart tournament played under a slightly different format, slightly different rules, both very entertaining in their own way. And uh, we'll start with the UK Championship, which I thought was a phenomenal event from start to finish um, and I was very privileged to be commentating in the arena at the end when Ronnie O'Sullivan won those last three frames um, and the snooker that he played was sensational to win the tournament but for me what stood out was the, the way the crowd got involved and you could feel I mean any snooker player on tour really can win three frames in one visit but there's something about the way he does it that really draws people in and the crowd were just in awe. It was incredible. It was one of the most incredible atmospheres I've ever witnessed. I thought that was such a phenomenal performance in the end from him. Having, you know, we went there. It's typical Ronnie, really. We went there talking about him 30 years on from becoming the youngest champion and he ended it the oldest champion um, in the UK Championship. Of course, off the back of his film, The Edge of Everything coming out, it was just kind of trademark showmanship and a reminder and I wrote an article on the Eurosport website about this, a reminder that he is still our greatest asset, and we maybe come on later to some of the issues around that. But I thought it was amazing. I thought it was absolutely amazing. What a thrill for everybody. I mean, the crowd in York, I was there all week, they absolutely loved the event. It was record ticket sales and, and, and you know, a real great buzz around, and they were kind of rewarded. They loved Ding as well. Ding's popular, um, but Ronnie is Ronnie, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, again, the champion, and, you know, the crowd there rewarded for coming along in big numbers with a classic moment, one of the great moments uh, in recent years, I think. It was different to the to the um, the record seventh World Championship or the record equaling seventh World Championship because it's a different event. The World Championship, 17 days, blood, sweat and tears. We saw him sort of collapse into tears, collapse into Judd Trump's arms at the end of that. It was a different emotion at the end of the UK Championship. He hadn't had to expend as much mental energy on it. It was a different thing to win an eighth UK title. He was already the record holder. Seven was the record anyway. He extended it to eight. So it was a different thing. It was kind of more joyous from his perspective 
And I just thought it's fantastic. And of course, what was also fantastic was the news that the, the viewing figures are massively up, um, on the BBC and Eurosport. Um, and this actually started in the qualifiers. The, the, um, qualifying coverage that was provided on the World Snooker Tour YouTube and Facebook pages, on Discovery Plus as well, but YouTube and Facebook, it was up 28% on last year. And it was the same amount of coverage, two days commentary on table one and then the two judgment days. Last year we had Jimmy White, which, you know, you would think would boost the figures. So to be 28% up showed that before we even got to York, there was a lot of interest in the UK Championship. And it was a very good product that they put together. I was happy to be part of it. And then we got to York and the figures were, were really, really good. Um, it was, uh, I was just reading it here, it was uh, across the BBC and Eurosport, it was a jump of 35% compared to last year. With Ronnie O'Sullivan, you do get um, a natural increase. It's hard to define how, how much it is. I spoke to one of the sort of people I know in broadcasting, and they reckon it's at least 10%. But, of course, he didn't play every match. <laughs> he played the final, and that and that was that was important. Last year, he got to the quarterfinals, so he played three matches. It wasn't just down to him. As I say, it started before we got there. And there was one match, Mark Selby, Barry Hawkins on Eurosport. It attracted the highest ever audience on... UK Eurosport for the UK Championship. It was a it was a six five thriller. Um, Barry had a, had a couple of good chances to win that decider. You might remember Mark Selby potted that great blue and then won on the pink six five late at night. I commentated on that. It was very exciting. But here's why that's significant. Okay, the fact that that's the biggest figure they've ever got for the UK Championship in the UK and Eurosport. The previous bigger fi- biggest figure was during COVID in 2020, and people of course were naturally stuck at home. There, the figures were naturally inflated that year because people were stuck indoors, didn't have much to do. And all television got a boost from that. So to beat that figure, that is significant, I think. And that's Mark Selby, Barry Hawkins. Barry Hawkins, here's the thing about Barry. He he actually features in two of the three biggest ever audiences on ITV4 for snooker. So Barry seems to be a common factor here. Um, But anyway, um, close matches, of course, are a common factor as well. So the figures were really good on the BBC and Eurosport. They were really good um, for the uh, qualifying and I think one of the reasons, um, certainly at the main event, it looked like a, a brilliant tournament. If you tuned in, I said last week, and I'm going to repeat it, the set was the best set I've ever seen. Maybe watching on television, you don't quite see what happens between frames, but it looked dynamic. It looked like a proper thing. And of course it is. It's the UK Championship. A few years ago, it kind of didn't look like that, unfortunately. There were too many matches, too many people around. It's now become prestigious again. It was well-promoted. And, and I think this is true of the shootout as well, that what a lot of people has never really discussed, but what a lot of people don't realise is the amount of digital marketing that goes on now that World Snooker Tour do. And that's been very successful in raising awareness of these events, raising awareness of tickets, doing ticket competitions and deals. A lot of that goes on on Facebook and other places, uh, maybe not kind of uh, noticed by everybody, but it goes on and it pays off when you see the crowds as good as they are. Uh, we'll come on to the shootout later. Of course, they, they weren't so great early on, but they built up and the last day was uh, absolutely rammed. But the UK Championship was, it was well promoted. Obviously, the players did their bit brilliantly, playing great snooker. It was a great week for the, for this ball. And it puts the, uh, it gives the lie to people who sort of want to claim that snooker's in trouble. It, the opposite is true. It's actually booming in terms of live audiences. Ticket sales are up across the board and broadcast audiences that were already good are going up. So it's all good news. And in Ronnie O'Sullivan, we have uh, the standard bearer still, the man who is still managing somehow to raise the bar. Just when you think the bar can't go any higher, he's raised it again. 
And I did think at the end, Steve Dawson was there from Wilson who could tour the chairman presenting the trophy and they sort of lined up next to each other posing for photographs. And of course, there's been various things, you know, said by both sides and it, it got a bit unpleasant at one point and uh, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan says he's liable for disciplinary action. I think all sides have to see the bigger picture, which is snooker's better when Ronnie O'Sullivan is playing. He is still our greatest asset. And I think that that has to be recognised. And the best thing that can happen, as far as I'm concerned, and this is my personal opinion, is that disciplinary action against him should be dropped. Because bigger picture, we want him playing, we want him engaged with tournaments, we want him to be front and centre, entertaining people as only he can. And it, now, it may have gone too far down the line legally, maybe, to do that. But in a perfect world, what is the point? Just because he said a few things that may not have been right, and I'm not defending him because he doesn't, not everything he says is correct. But in the big, bigger picture, who cares? <laughs> what we want to see is him playing. And as far as I'm concerned, there should be an attempt to build bridges and there should be an attempt to, if not bring him on side, at least treat him, I guess, with the way he wants to be treated, which is the status he's earned, which is as the game's number one draw. You know, he's not the same as the world number 80. He's not, he's not just another player. And if you don't agree, why is he on every poster? Why is he used in all the marketing? Ronnie O'Sullivan is a big asset to the sport, the biggest asset we have, and I think personally that outranks any kind of comments he's made about, you know, exhibitions or anything else really. That's my opinion, but the main thing to take from all that is the UK Championship was a massive success. We've had a lot of feedback about it, so let's uh, start with Monica, who says, another amazing tournament. Thank you for your excellent commentary. Well, thank you, Monica. She says, Judgment Day was excellent. You and Stephen Hallworth are a great duo. You should do Judgment Day for all the qualifying day last rounds. It really spices up the tournament before it starts. Well, obviously, thank you, Monica. Obviously, I'd be in favour of that. But I'd, I'd certainly think, I mean, without, um, I'm going to say without blowing my own trumpet. I'm going to blow my own trumpet. The, doing qualifying commentary was myself and Phil Yates' idea initially. We, we wrote to the board, literally the board of World Snooker Tour last year, to suggest trialling it and mixing it in with promotions, ticket deals and all that sort of thing. And Will Snooker did do it at the UK Championship last year. They haven't done it until this year's UK Championship. I still think it would work at a lot of events as a way of promoting. If you're going to have, you know, qualifiers that last a week, why not use that as a way of promoting the tour in general? Um, so, listen, my phone's always on. That's all, that's all I say. Um, anyway, Monica continues. Can I ask why John Virgo wasn't commentating on the BBC this year? I hope he's back for the Masters and the Worlds. I've got to say, I love my Discovery Plus and Eurosport, but when Hazel is leading on the BBC events, it really does add that touch of importance and extra star quality to the tournament. You could feel this was a big one. Well, in terms of John Virgo, um, I believe the BBC now, him and Dennis Taylor, they will both do the World Championship and they'll do one of the UK and the Masters. So JV will be at the Masters, I, I would assume, off, uh, you know, off the back of that. Um, completely agree on Hazel Irvin, she's... You know, one of the best, not just one of the best sports broadcasters in Britain. She's one of the best broadcasters. Simple as that. A terrific um, presence on the BBC and and a great um, adds a lot of gravitas to snooker coverage in general. No no disagreement there at all. Monica continues. What a fitting champion. When he needed it, he brought out his genius. It never fails to amaze me. The best Sunday in a long time for me. After the documentary, I was so concerned for him, watching him suffer. But on second thoughts, and after a second or maybe third watch by now, I think he needs to be in that place to bring out the best in himself. A word for Ding, I just love him. A very classy player, deserves to be back in the winners, uh, uh, in winners' talk and finals. 
I hope for more of this level from him. I'm excited for the rest of the season. I'm buzzing and have tickets for the Masters final. Hope to see Ronnie there, and I truly believe this is the start of Chapter 8 in his career. Thanks for all you do for Snooker. Such a great member of the Snooker family you are. Have a great Christmas. Well, thank you, Monica. You also have a great Christmas. And, well, it's great. And that, I think, what you've said there is very true of a lot of people. You're buzzing for the rest of the season. You've seen something great. You've got your tickets for the Masters final. You may well see Ronnie O'Sullivan there, as you say. And, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, it's it's just good. It was a good week, wasn't it? I mean, it's, I think even the sort of downbeat people on, on social media would struggle to, to, to find something bad to say about it. They may they may uh, manage it because they manage it on most things. But uh, in the real world, we enjoyed it. Alpha Bonzi, very much in the real world, says, After Ronnie O'Sullivan's eighth UK crown, my three quick ones are number one. Is the Rockets' biggest problem, Will Snooker Tour, whose treatment of the game's golden goose... Seems at first glance obtuse, considering what he means to their bottom line. Or his fans, who still expect so much of him, uh, even after giving 30 years of himself to them. Uh, well, in answer to your question, I'm not sure... I'm not actually sure he has a problem, really. Um, either side, he's still playing great snooker, which is all that really matters. How he navigates expectations, and how he navigates you know, his relationships with people running the sport or anyone else is kind of up to him but bottom line when he gets out there and plays he can still do it number two from alpha did the ronnie documentary hit upon the reason john higgins hasn't won anything other than the invitational championship league last two years i.e he's trying to win playing a losing game and keeps getting caught out um i don't i mean that was com- that comment was made specifically i think about the semi-final that uh, ronnie played against him and it was made during the semi-final as well not in the cold light of day. I think John Higgins is not playing a losing game. I think he's playing, at times, really well. It's just sustaining it performance after performance. So, for example, at the UK Championship, he played well against Joe O'Connor. And then I commentated on the match with Joey Long, and he was he was poor. You know, he just was, I'm afraid. Don't say that with any pleasure, but he, he didn't play well. And I think maybe that's an age thing now. Consistency is an issue. Um, of course, Scottish Open this week, he'll want to do well there. But, uh, yeah... It, John Higgins, watch his world ranking now in the second half of the season because a lot of the points from two years ago are coming off and that is going to leave him clearly um, sort of scrapping a little bit to stay in the top 16. Uh, you rather fancy he will, but you know, he won't be there forever. So the next few months are quite important for him, but he'll be in the uh, ITV Players Series tournaments, so or certainly should be in the first two, the World Grand Prix and the Players' Championship. So that's going to be a, a big help if he wins matches in them. Number three from Alpha, why does Ding We have such a great record in York? Three titles, two other finals compared to Sheffield. A great week in York, thanks as always for the podcast. Well, thank you, Alpha. Yeah, I don't know, some players I think they do take to certain venues, um, and Ding is well-liked in York. It was noticeable, the audience. I mean, obviously, Ronnie is going to be more popular than anybody, but Ding had a lot of supporters and, you know, established fans there. I mean, I came out one night. Um, he'd beaten... Who had he beaten? It would have been the quarterfinals... Uh, oh, Mark Williams, yeah. He beat Mark Williams with the, that, that frame of the record point score. And there was a, a group of about eight Chinese fans, and they were there every day waiting to speak to him. Um, and I'm sure they did get the chance and they got selfies. But they were incredibly excited to see him. Um, and I have to say as well, I can't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, but it, I mentioned it in the commentary because it was something I saw. And it's, it's not particular to him. It's actually typical of a lot of players. Mark Williams lost that match, and he'd been 5-4 up and was favoured at that point. And it was about midnight when the players came out. And Mark, those same fans, because Ding was still doing media, Mark posed for every picture he was asked for. He spoke to everybody who wanted to speak to him. 
brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You know, he didn't just sort of leave by a side door, not acknowledge anybody. And that is, I'm pleased to say, that is more that is the norm rather than the exception. But I saw it happen, and I wanted to acknowledge Mark, who's uh, you know he's very good with the fans. But Ding, yeah, he likes York, and I'm sure. I mean, there was sort of stories went round that it might be leaving York. We don't know the exact uh, the exact facts of that, but um, we'll find that in due course. But the fact is, it's well supported there, and I'd love to see it stay there personally. Um, <coughs> Pavla writes, or Pavel, I, I saw I'm mispronouncing your name, but so I'm writing during the UK Championship final. After the first eight frames have been played, there's something I've noticed in previous days, so I'm curious whether you can tell me something more about it. Here's the thing, Ronnie O'Sullivan has played all of his matches in the afternoon. As far as I know, and I might be mistaken, only schedules for the first two rounds are determined in advance. I believe that schedule of play after that is determined by the organisers. So therefore, one would expect that O'Sullivan is going to play in the evening. For all the known reasons, TV, primetime, live audience, etc. To be clear, organisers have every right to schedule matches the way they want to. Also, it's very much fine if O'Sullivan has said he's tired, that he has problems with his hand and, and he's playing in sneakers, uh, and that he would like it, if possible, to play matches only in the afternoon. And it would be very much all right if organisers had met his wish to play, maybe not in the evening. Also, it maybe would not be right if the player who played his quarterfinal in the evening then had to play the semi-final the next morning, but that would not be the first time we've seen something like that. I know all of this might be my imagination, and that O'Sullivan might just have had such a schedule so that he only played in the afternoon. And beside all that, and having seen some of his moods during the week, I'm still wondering about his strength, stamina, and the ability to play late in the night. And since it's currently 4-4, there might be a long night ahead of him. Uh, just to... Uh, Spoiler alert, uh, he did win 10-7. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, he says, I just think it's unusually had this schedule. This is, he's from, Pavlos from, uh, Belgrade in Serbia. Uh, no, you're not imagining it. You actually spotted something there that is, I think, quite significant. And he, he did play all his matches in the afternoon, apart from obviously the last session of the final. And that will be the same at the Masters. Um, if he, if he reaches the final, the only session he'll play at night will be the final. And the reason is very simple. B the BBC are the host broadcaster. Their main live programme is always the afternoon. They're not live on network television in the evening, so they want the main attractions to be in the afternoon, and Ronnie O'Sullivan is the biggest attraction. So that's the reason. Um, it would seem to be more sensible to play at night because people are less likely to be at school. Well, they won't be at school at night in, in the country where the tournament's held. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have finished work by then. But the BBC are live in the afternoon, so the best matches, as they see it, are on in the afternoon. That's nothing to do with Ronnie O'Sullivan, he hasn't requested it, but it is an advantage, definitely, because your day is shorter. Um, even with media commitments, he'll be leaving the venue six o'clock latest, so he's got the whole night off, where other people are there, you know, for much longer, they might be leaving at half eleven. So it's an advantage, um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, the BBC put the money in, they can choose the schedule, but... It's a fact that he, he, he very rarely in their events plays at night, apart from at the World Championship, where because there's so many sessions, you can't actually schedule it that way. You have to play your fair share in the evenings. But the UK and the Masters, the only sessions he'll play at night will be the final session of the final. Oddly enough, the, the year it was different was COVID, when it was on BBC4 at night, and they actually started putting the better matches on in the evening, which was ironic. There was no audience, uh, live audience, obviously, um, to go and enjoy it. Um, but there we are. That's... You've, you've spotted something there that was that is true. He, he he didn't play at night apart from, um, you know, the last night, and it must be a help because obviously you know your day is shorter. It's just a fact. Uh, Phil Spivey, 
still on the UK Championship. I'm writing this on the morning of the final. What a tournament it's been. The 30 matches so far, 18 have ended 6-4 or 6-5, which just goes to show the quality and drama on show. So many candidates for match of the tournament. I think my favourite was Ding V. Williams, followed by Selby Hawkins. Now, you say some flattering things here, Phil, about my commentary, which I'm going to gloss over um, in a rare uh, attack of modesty. You're quite right, though. I did. I was quite pleased with that line about because Barry and Mark were, were sharing a flat. And I did describe them as the Chandler and Joey of friends. And then, of course, when it went 5 all, I did say this is the one with the decider. But we'll gloss over that because we're not here for self-congratulation. I mean, for, imagine that on a podcast. <laughs> anyway, Phil continues. Zhang Ander really is proof that good snooker is entertaining regardless of the style or speed of the player. There's something hypnotic about watching him go about his business, rather like an East African long-distance runner serenely eating up the laps in a 10,000-metre race. A couple of questions you may be able to answer. The epic eighth frame between Ding and Williams made me wonder what's the highest break made by the losing player in a frame? Has anyone made an 80 or 90 plus break or even a century but lost the frame due to penalty points being conceded? Theoretically, a player could have given away 60 points in fouls early on, made a huge break, but left enough on for his or her opponent to take the frame. <coughs> well, there are a couple of instances. I mean, Stuart Bingham um, holds the record for most misses, 16 misses. So if every one of those is four points, that's 64 points. Um, but it was a frame against Jimmy White, one of the old PTCs in, I think, the Republic of Ireland. I'm going to say Kalani off the top of my head. But Stuart won the frame. He made a 90-odd break, I think. Obviously, 64, you know, you can win a frame in normal circumstances from 64 behind. But the fact is, all the reds were still on. So there was plenty still on. But uh, we must mention here, <coughs> this is quite a famous one because we talk about it so much, but Neil Foles did make an 80 break against Willie Thorne and lost the frame. Uh, that happened. Willie got the snookers he needed. Phil continues, Real maximum breaks. Let's imagine Tian Peng Fei against Elliot Slesser. I don't know why you mentioned these two players, but anyway, that's fine. Uh, he says, Tian fouls before any balls are potted and leaves a free ball. Okay, so he's fouled and left a free ball. Slesser pots the brown for one point, but fails to pot a subsequent colour. Tian then comes to the table, pots 15 reds, all with blacks, and the six colours. This is a one four seven, but would it be classed as a maximum? The maximum available to Slesser was 155, but he didn't get past the first pot. So is 155 now considered the maximum for this frame, or is Tian judged to have made the maximum available to him? Now, this is, uh, I think, kind of worms here, Phil, because it's something I've never considered. This is, a, this is a fantastically niche question, which, of course, is essentially the bedrock of this podcast. Um, what you're saying is the, the maximum available, actually, with the free ball. I think, actually, I'll turn it round to what you said. I think it works more, actually, if and you use these players as an example. So Slesser gets the free ball, he pots the brown for a point, doesn't pot the colour. It's more than, I think, if he comes back to the table later and the 15 reds are still on. Um, would it be a maximum if he made the 147? Now, I think the answer would be yes. I think people would would say, actually, you potted 15 reds and 15 blacks. It's a maximum. But if he'd already potted a ball, as you say, in the frame um, with the free ball, other people may disagree. And this is, you know, there's a lot of division in society right now. This could tip everyone over. This could this could be anarchy if this were to happen. Um I would say it would be considered a maximum, but there will be arguments maybe on the other side, and you've sort of made them. So, well, I guess until it happens, we don't know. But uh, well, it's added a bit of spice, you know, to the, as you say, roll on the Scottish Open here. Who knows? It could happen in Edinburgh, and, you know, Parliament could be recalled. It, it could be a lot, lot riding on this, but I would say probably people would consider, after a bit of chin-stroking, that it would be uh, a maximum. <clears throat> but a great, a great question. Uh, now... Who have we got here? Callum Law. You said, 
I'm sorry, I was about to start reading yours halfway through, Callum, but he says, I hope you enjoyed the UK Championship. I certainly did. It was a fantastic week of snooker, which had me engrossed from start to finish. Ronnie O'Sullivan continues to amaze. The way he played at the end of the final against Ding Jin Wee was simply top class. I was also pleased to see Ding back more like his old self. Obviously, there's been a lot of reflections on Ronnie's 1993 UK Championship win, but something I found quite strange is some of the talk about 30 years of domination by Ronnie, or three decades at the top, etc. Maybe I'm being controversial, but over his career, I'm not necessarily sure there's any period of, say, five years or longer where you could say he's truly dominated the game. Yes, Ronnie's had great longevity, but I've always felt his career has been one of peaks and troughs, where he was hot and cold spells in terms of winning and in his earlier career, a lot of this was probably linked to his well-being off the table. If you look back, although he broke through in the 90s, it was Stephen Hendry that dominated that decade. In the first half of the 2000s, Mark Williams, along with Ronnie, was pretty dominant. And in the second half of the 2000s and into the 2010s, John Higgins was up there. And over the last decade or so, Mark Selby, Judd Trump and Neil Robertson have all been up there alongside Ronnie. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but for me, Ronnie's brilliance and dominance that he's enjoyed has been more sporadic and spread more thinly over a longer period than some of Snooker's other all-time greats. Aside from that, looking back at the tournament, John Higgins seems to be in a curious place at the moment where he plays well, like in his first match, he's still top-notch. But if he's not at his best, he's no longer he no longer seems capable of winning matches. Uh, I saw Alan McManus saying John's lost his B game, and I have to agree, the reliable, sturdy and pretty unspectacular Higgins game that used to win him so many matches seems to have deserted him. I certainly wouldn't put it past John to rediscover it, but right now, with his game, he's flitting between very good and pretty poor it's going to be hard for him to win Thomas unless he manages to be relentlessly brilliant, like in the Players' Championship a couple of years ago. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think I sort of covered the Higgins thing, but in terms of running a Sullivan, the dominance, I mean, he has been, he's, one thing I would I would argue, he's had 30 years at the top. He hasn't won every tournament in that time, obviously, but he's he's been at the top of the game for 30 years. Uh, he's had spells where um, it sort of felt like dominance. He's been the best player that season. He's been world number one for a lot of that time. What he hasn't done, and it's just a fact, is won major events year after year after year back to back. Stephen Hendry won uh, three UK titles in a row, five Masters in a row, five World Championships in a row. <laughs> now, you know, that's freakish behaviour, clearly. Ronnie O'Sullivan has not done that, but what he's done over a 30-year period is won, well, eight now eight UK titles, seven World titles, seven Masters titles. So you could argue it's not dominance, but it's certainly longevity, and it's certainly it is three decades at the top, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you know, people have their own arguments about what's more impressive: doing it in a concentrated period or doing it over 30 years. Personally, I think to still be <laughs> at the age of 48, which he, which he just had his birthday, happy birthday, Ronnie, um, to still be doing it, to still be world number one, is, is pretty incredible, actually. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that that's well, that's my opinion. Um, Callum's not done yet. He said, <clears throat> on a different subject, I wanted to chip in on memorable commentary lines. Here are two favourites of mine that were before my time, but I've heard since. Clive Everton's closer at the end of the 1999 World Championship final. So Clive said, Ray Reardon, six times world champion in the 70s. Steve Davis, six times in the 80s. But it's magnificent seven times for Stephen Hendry in the 90s. Context and class, in my opinion, it doesn't get much better than that when it comes to commentary. But given what happened a year earlier, the following line from the Ted Lowe, from Ted Lowe at the end of the 86 World Finals makes me smile as it describes it as the most remarkable World Final I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> obviously, based on 85 being the previous year, that's, that's some statement. I think what he, what, what Ted Lowe meant was the story of Joe Johnson winning it was the most remarkable thing he'd seen um, and, and the way he won it. So I kind of understand what he was what he was saying, but it, it, 
kind of it's jarring, I suppose, based on the, the eighty-five. Obviously, was more incredible in terms of what happened. Uh, Callum concludes. Lastly, on commentary, going back to the UK Championship, watching the tournament on the BBC, I always find it a delight to listen to Dennis Taylor. His passion, humour, and knowledge brightens up any game for me. Uh, apologies for lengthy email. Thanks, as always, for the great podcast. No apologies needed, Callum. All very interesting. Dennis is one of the well, we just mentioned him. Obviously, the eighty-five final, one of the great characters in the sport. And one of the great enthusiasts, and there was a lot of illness going around, both commentary teams in, in York, BBC and Eurosport, but Dennis was a lot, not, not completely immune, he, he had a bit of a cold, but he, he's a trooper, he's been through worse than that, and he carried on, and there was one day he had to do both matches, because other people had sort of fallen by the wayside. He got on with it. Uh, <coughs> now, we continue, uh, Scott McCarter. Still in the UK Championship. He says, sorry it's been so long since I emailed, but I spent a few years finishing my theology degree, from which I graduated in June this year. Well, that's pretty uh, impressive, Scott. Thank you very much for sharing that, a theology degree. Got some clever listeners. Uh, well done on graduating. He says, to business, what a player Ronnie O'Sullivan continues to be. In 1993, won the UK Championship as a fresh-faced 17-year-old, and now 30 years on, he wins a 40th ranking title. I also think it was good that he won a non-crucible tournament, because he, he needed, in my view, to win a tournament other than the World Championship, so it doesn't just look like a one-tournament man every season. Uh, I have to say, Scott, if you're going to win one tournament every season, the World Championship is, isn't a bad one, but anyway. He says, can I give my top three O'Sullivan achievements? 2007 Northern Ireland Trophy against Ali Carter, the last 16, five centuries in a best of nine. The 2005 Masters Final against John Higgins, the 1-3-4 to win it, was the finest total clearance of his career, in my view. And the 2017 English Open the whole week. He says, I love your comms work. Looking forward to ITV4 stuff in the new year. Thank you, Scott. Very kind. And, yeah, well, everyone will have their own personal uh, sort of favourite moments from Ronnie's career. And, of course, he keeps adding to them. That's the thing, isn't it? Chris Boggan. Uh, I was at the Barbican with my dad uh, last Wednesday and Thursday for the fifth time in six years. It really is a tremendous venue. And the atmosphere during the epic Selby Hawkins deciding frame was spine-tingling. I did a vague count... And guesstimate of its audience capacity, I reckon it could be as much as 1,300. It occurred to me it could be a great venue for the World Championship if they decide that it needed more capacity. I know an extra 300 isn't that much, but maybe it would be enough. If the Crucible remained a venue, perhaps for the Tour Championship, so only one table required, I doubt many would have a problem with this. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, Chris, I have to say I don't agree. I don't. One thing I don't agree with is shifting tournaments around um, and assuming that they will be popular in a different venue because that venue is popular with a certain event. So, for example, as you will know, for 20 years, the Preston Guildhall staged the UK Championship. That was where it was synonymous with in that period, in the in the, in the 80s and 90s. They took it to Bournemouth because the sponsor was from Bournemouth, and that Bournemouth International Centre is a fantastic venue, and they'd had a lot of snooker before, and it's a great venue. So it, it, it actually worked in Bournemouth, but they then, to, to keep the Guildhall Association going, they started giving Preston, frankly, lesser events, and, it, and the crowds were never as good again. Because the feeling was we're getting the sort of second-rate tournaments when we've had one of the majors. Um, and I would warn against sort of, I mean, the World Championship. I like the Crucible. I think people know that. Putting the Tour Championship in the Crucible, I'm not sure. Because the Crucible is so associated with the World Championship, it's like we're getting a lesser event. The Tour Championship is a brilliant event, by the way. But it's not the World Championship, clearly. Now, the good news is the Tour Championship is going to the Manchester Central, which will be great there, I think. Um, so... I know what you're saying. There's more. There's more seats at York, but um, 
I, 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 I personally would just keep things as they are right now. I know there's talk of leaving York, and, and I've got no details on that other than just what, what's been said. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan said it was leaving. It was, this was the last one there, which is not true. It's there next year. After that, we don't know. I'll wait and see on that. I'm not going to comment on things that have, you know, have not been sort of announced or clarified. If if it leaves, we'll discuss it. But um, for now, we'll leave it at that. Um, now, Dave Friedel, we've had a lot of emails, by the way, which thank you for the, for the emails. Thank you. It's nice to know people are listening and, and, and engaged. Um, <clears throat> Dave says, uh, I just enjoyed your latest episode recorded prior to Ronnie's triumph at the UK Championship. One email you discussed addressed the merits of various seeding approaches. Should last year's champion be seeded number one? What about the current world number one? Yes, we had an email last week. Um, I think it was from Joe Richards, regular correspondent. And uh, the, the argument was that the, world number, the, the, the defending champion shouldn't just be seeded number one because it doesn't reflect current form. That was the basic argument. <clears throat> Dave says, I'm not smart enough to understand all the interesting implications, how this affects each half of the bracket, the difference between one and two-year ranking points, etc. But I thought it might be interesting to look outside the world of snooker for two stories about how this, how this problem has been tackled elsewhere. I'm pretty sure there used to be a rule, or maybe a tradition, that the man who won the Wimbledon singles title was placed straight into the final the following year. So the entire tournament was basically about who got to play the champ. At some point this changed and the winner was required to start playing in the first round, just like everyone else. I'm pretty sure I heard this curious factoid in 1981 when Bjorn Borg had won four singles titles in a row and was vying for his fifth straight, setting a record in the aptly named Open Era. Fun fact, Borg did indeed win his fifth straight, beating John John McEnroe in five sets, although that victory is probably better remembered for the heart-stopping marathon tiebreaker in the fourth set. Could I have done some research before writing this email? Of course, but like you, I couldn't be bothered. After all, why ruin a perfectly good story with facts? Well, <clears throat> the thing, on that, Dave, of course, the World Snooker Championship used to be organised in that way. I mean, in, in the Joe Davis era, a lot of those titles he won, he would basically be one of two competitors. He was a defending champion, and he would someone would challenge him. And quite often, he chose the challenger, and quite often, <laughs> he, he played it on his own table. But anyway, th- those were the days, weren't they, where you could do those sort of things. Uh, Dave continues, Your discussion also reminded me of an interesting feature of some debate competitions my son was involved in during college. The teams that entered were all randomly paired at the start. Uh, but then for each successive round, the winners were paired against winners, and that power ranking continued for rounds three and four. By the end, four teams advanced to the medal round in what was essentially a semi-final. Some smart kid had worked out an algorithm in a spreadsheet that managed all the pairings. The idea was that strong teams could indeed face and eliminate each other early on, but the four teams left standing at the end would have the best record against the opponents who were performing the best that weekend. Thanks, as always, for your entertaining and insightful contributions. Thank you, David. And um, just on the, on the seedings argument, I mean, I suppose, you know, you could have, I think now at Wimbledon, they have a sort of seedings committee, which always sounds a bit shadowy and shady, doesn't it? Who's on it? You know, who decides? I, I wouldn't want that in snooker. I think you have to go off the world ranking list. I was thinking about this, actually. Gary Wilson is defending champion at the Scottish Open. He's not in the top 16. So under the proposal we had last week, he would actually have to qualify. And I think that's wrong. I think if, you, if you're defending champion, you you deserve a moment. I mean, he's on 10 a.m. actually, so it's not a big moment for him. But can be on table one. He's going to be recognised as defending champion. You can argue whether he should be number one seed or not. I don't mind it personally, but you know, it, it's just a, a matter of opinion, really, isn't it? And uh, people will have uh, various opinions on that. Uh, now then, who should we go to next? <clears throat> we'll go to James Buck. We're going to pass the buck. <laughs> uh, we used to have a joke section on the podcast. It didn't last very long. Uh, uh, James says, I'm going to put forward an argument that there can only be one player in the current era that can dominate the game. 
based on some key areas being equal, ability on the table, preparation and settled life off the table, and the intangible thing that is confidence, what remains to separate someone from the field? I've been hearing commentary that Judd Trump plays shots no other professional players can play. This mainly seems to refer to long pots screwing back into bulk, which effectively turns a risky pot into a shot to nothing, a chance without risk. I might also add in the ability to spot and execute plants, again creating more chances to, uh, or shots to nothing. Chances to win frames come from a number of things. Long pots or shots to nothing, good safety play creating mistakes, your opponent missing whilst in the balls. Most of these things will level themselves out over the course of a season and almost certainly over the course of a career. But to win multiple events and affect dominance, you have to do something to stand out from the crowd. As success in professional sport comes down to such fine margins and the scope for improvement also disappears, it's only the outliers that can dominate. And in snooker, that player is Judd Trump. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether any player can dominate in today's game. Uh, well, thank you, James. And um, <coughs> interesting analysis. I think, like a lot of things, it comes down to semantics. What do you mean by domination? Um, now, we already discussed Stephen Hendry. Nobody could dispute that he or Steve Davis dominated their eras because they won most of the events. It wasn't just the, the you know, the, the major events. They won most of the events. That's a fact. Um, Judd Trump, of course, has won already this season three ranking events in a row. He certainly dominated that, that part of the season. But let's, let's put it this way. If by the Crucible in April he hasn't won another tournament, then I don't think he's dominated the season, has he? He's dominated a period of it. And I think that's more what happens now. I mean, Mark Allen has suddenly, you know, he's won two of the last three events. So he maybe is moving into that period where he'll have the purple patch and start winning tournaments. Um, I think my sort of uh, definition of dominance is you have to be the number one ranked player, I think. Um, now, the rankings, is, that's a whole other issue, how they worked out. Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan is currently world number one. Uh, he hasn't been the dominant player the last couple of years, but he's won, obviously, the World Championship, which is a massive uh, points tally. Um, to be the dominant figure in the sport, I think also, you know, you have to be world champion. Now... Judd Trump won that in 2019. He certainly was the dominant player then uh, for that season, and he carried on for the next two seasons to be. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my... I don't think, don't think it comes down to actually shots, really, personally. I think it comes down to trophies. Um, and I think it's hard to dominate because there's so many tournaments. If there's 20 tournaments a season, how many do you have to win to be the dominant player? Is five enough? Do you need to win ten, which seems unlikely? Um so, yeah, it's all semantics and opinion, and that's kind of <laughs> what the podcast and most podcasts, of course, is based on. Gavin Power says, many thanks for reading out my best 32 of all time email last week. I promise this email will be less time consuming. We've got another one on that actually later, Gavin. But anyway, he says, could you tell me what happens to the tournament tables after each event concludes? My guess is the cloth and cushions are removed and discarded, and the slate bed and tables are moved onto the next venue to be recushioned and reclothed. Is that correct? Also, do the tables on tour... Last just one season and then sold off. I'm curious to know. He says, on a separate note, I thought the email last week about left-handed players playing right-handed with the rest was an interesting one, but, but, but because I'm fairly certain Jimmy White spent much of his career playing right-handed with the rest and then switched to his more dominant left hand in recent years. Is this correct? And if you ever manage to ask him why, please do pass the answer on. Uh, well, I haven't asked Jimmy that. Um, he sort of threw the rest, didn't he, during the... Uh, in one tournament, but anyway, we'll gloss over that. Um, on the tables, yeah, I mean, I think you're basically right. The, the, cl the cloth, sometimes the players will actually uh, purchase the cloth for their own tables, um, and, and um, 
you know, because tournament standard obviously is, is what they need. <clears throat> and yeah, the slate and all the rest of it is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to another event. I mean, the, the table fitters, when you, when they, you see them moving in at the start, I mean, we're not normally there to, to see at the start and putting them up, but at the end when they start dismantling them and carrying them, it's, it's physical, <laughs> manual work. It's tough labour that is. It's not, you know, just the physical, sort of effort that goes into lugging all that stuff around. I really do respect those guys a lot, you know, and when people sort of from afar criticise, you know, pockets and and, and, and t- the role of the table and all that, they've got no idea the, the, the work that goes into erecting those tables and it's all done in good faith by highly skilled people. Um, so they deserve respect. There's a guy, Chris, who uh, he very nearly lost a finger a few years ago. He dropped a slate on his finger and thankfully it was kind of... You know, it was touch and go, but it was sort of basically reattached almost in the hospital. You know, horrible um, thing to happen. But, you know, they do uh, a lot of hard work there. And, yeah, the, the, that's essentially it. The um, the slates will, will come round again for another event. Um, <clears throat> and actually, Gavin wrote again to ask, I think your wife, Gavin, you were saying, uh, was asking uh, what the numbers are on the on the table. That, that's the heating. So it's to monitor the, um, the temperature. Yes, you say that. I think it would be for monitoring the temperature. That is what it is. Um, do pass that on. <coughs> Mark and John, regular correspondents, said a couple of weeks ago, we saw an Instagram post from Fergal O'Brien offering snooker coaching sessions. Having recently built our own snooker room, we thought it'd be nice to take him up on his offer. We're much better at watching snooker than playing, so some coaching advice from Fergal was very welcome. Last night, Fergal came over and we had such a fantastic evening. Great conversation and stories, lots of laughter, and his knowledge and coaching technique was first class. We don't expect to win many ranking events this year, but we now have many things to consider and work on to improve and increase our enjoyment of playing. If anyone's interested in coaching, whether you're a beginner or professional or anywhere in between, we can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you, Fergal, again for a great night. Well, actually, yeah, Fergal, I commentated on with the shootout. He mentioned this. He enjoyed himself as well um, in, in what was a, apparently a lovely snooker room. Yeah, I mean, Fergal is, you know, he's a legend. He's a friend of the podcast and just a very smart guy about the sport. He's been playing it forever. But it's not only that, he has the, the, the nice manner and the personality to pass on his knowledge to other people. And he's doing that in commentary and he's doing it in coaching. And you could do, as you say, a lot worse uh, than Fergal. Now, as is the way, having done uh, a lot of comments on the UK Championship and then moved on, we're going to move back because I missed out this, uh, this uh, email from Philip in Madison, Wisconsin. He says, I hope you're well and taking a well-deserved rest after all your hard work bringing us great commentary and coverage on the tournament. I especially love the format of Judgment Day, although I imagine it must be a lot harder to commentate on four tables at once. Well, thank you, Philip. I mean, the, the way the circuit moves these days, a lot of time for rest, but, uh, you know, we'll bring it on, is our, is our motto. I say that. I didn't do two days of the shootout. Uh, judgment Day's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's good fun. The time passes quickly because you're just so focused on what's happening. Anyway, uh, Philip says, Ronnie, I don't think I have the right superlatives to describe his win at this point. What an achievement. Just when Trump is catching up to the world number one spot, Ronnie wins the big one to leave him some 200,000 <laughs> points in the dust. Ding Junhui's run to the final is also impressive. He had to come through qualifying and defeated four top 16 players in a row, Alan Ford, Williams and Trump, to get to the final and came close to beating Ronnie. He rightly earned his place again back in the top 16 for a spot in the Masters. But someone must be playing a cruel joke on Ding. He's now playing Ronnie again in the first round. He's having the worst first round draws. First Mark Allen, now Ronnie. I ranted about Matchroom a couple of episodes ago. This time I have something more positive. Usually match this is Matchroom Live he's talking about here, Philip. He says that usually Matchroom Live only shows the match itself and no studio analysis. 
but there's also no adverts between frames. It just cuts to a blank screen or an ambient shot of the arena. Sometimes the stream will keep going for hours after the match is finished and we can see the event staff reconfiguring the arena, converting the two table to one table, etc. I find it very interesting and I'd love it if Will Snooker Tour could make a time-lapse montage-style video along with some interviews to show us the behind-the-scenes of a tournament. The people that go in at 2am to reconfigure the tables through the night when there's a late finish deserves a recognition beyond the usual controversies about pocket sizes. Plus, a genuinely interesting thing to see. It's been a superb tournament. Can the Masters surpass the quality? Can Ronnie win again? I can't wait until January to find out. Thank you and keep up the great work. <clears throat> well, thank you, Philip. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the, the excitement is buzzing for the next tournament, the next big tournament, the Masters which is great to hear. It's interesting that you get to see uh, the, all, the, all that uh, footage going on. Uh, they don't cut the feed, clearly, which could be dangerous if they don't cut the sound, because <laughs> all sorts of things get said, as you'd imagine. But um, in terms of... I think Mark King, the referee, um, who refereed the shootout, I think at times on social media, he's actually... He has done a time-lapse thing, just literally you see the, the, the arena being reconfigured in about sort of a minute. Um, it's actually sort of seven or eight hours, all condensed. In terms of doing a sort of documentary, I mean, obviously, it, it would be a lot of work. I mean, just you say the people that go in at 2 a.m., obviously someone would have to be there at 2 a.m. filming them. They, they've, they've sort of done, um, they've done a few things like that in the past, not necessarily putting the tables up, but sort of just, you know, following players to their press conferences and so on. I think people like to see that stuff. It's a lot of work, but yeah, I mean, in theory, that would be great um, if if, uh, if we could see more of that sort of thing. And it maybe would lead to more of an appreciation for some of the people who work at these tournaments and the, the long hours and the hard work that they do to make them happen. So it, it's not the worst idea by any means. Liam McMullen has been enjoying the Ronnie documentary, Edge of Everything. He says, I watched Edge of Everything this weekend. I couldn't believe hearing the final exchange and the embrace between Judd and Ronnie. I think so many people, myself included, thought at the time this was awkward, far too long, perhaps one-sided and, ge and just generally quite an uncomfortable moment. However, seeing this footage and hearing the exchange proves it's completely different from everything I first thought. Judd comes off incredibly in defeat. It just shows how much it meant to Ronnie and overall is actually an incredibly beautiful moment. Indeed, it just goes to show how judging something at face value can leave us all with egg on our faces. This was the best moment and an interesting watch for me. Thank you, Liam. I agree with that. I thought it was was the best moment, and I thought, like you say, it was pretty incredible. I'm not actually like if people haven't seen it or are planning to watch it, and I know in certain parts of the world it, it's been kind of hard to, to find. I'm not going to go into that more because people can discover it for themselves. But I agree with what you say. It was pretty incredible, um, and uh, yeah, the edge of everything is on Amazon Prime in the UK and Ireland. <clears throat> now, uh, Christine uh, writes. Hi, Dave, or David, as Ken calls you in his lovely Dublin accent. Uh, lots of people talking about Sean Murphy's 147 at the shootout as the best ever. Now, we'll come on to this this whole business of the 147 shortly, but Christine has... Uh, you may remember long-time listeners has come up with their own way of ranking 147s. She says they obviously haven't clocked that the cubicle hit the cushion 24 times between the first red and the last black. The best 147 I've come across is Ronnie's in the World Championship in 2008 against Mark Williams. 14 cushions... On my count method, ignoring what happens after the last black is potted. I'm taking a break from work in the new year to look after a family member and we'll have some time on my hands, so we'll let you know if I find any better ones. A lot's been made of Sean having to deal with a guy shouting out as he was potting the blue. I have to admit the cry of don't bottle it made me laugh. In 2008, someone who to my ear had a Welsh accent shouted as Ronnie lined up for the last green and didn't, and Ronnie didn't flinch. I reckon it's more pressure potting in silence with random outbursts rather than the more or less 
continuous noise surrounding the sh- shootout event. Just on that, Christine, uh, famously uh, Jimmy White uh, in 1992 at the Crucible, he made a maximum. I think it was on the green as well. Someone actually shouted out something. And John Street, the referee, just said, just turned to them and said, shut up. <laughs> just said, you could do that in 1992. You'd tell people to shut up in the crowd, and they would do. Um, you know, no one batted an eyelid back then. But anyway, uh, she continues... That aside, what a fantastic advertisement for Snooker, the shootout 147 is. The pre-Christmas slot adds to the atmosphere for me, and even though some aspects of it are still a lottery, Sean has shown that skill and class can still shine at the tournament. Back to cushions. I reckon a 21-cushion event will be much better at showcasing the key skill of cue ball control than this talk of a spotted cue ball. Imagine an event where all rules are the same as Snooker, but once you pot your first ball, there's a cushion count shown. Once a player's cushion count goes over 21, they lose the frame, even if they're ahead on points. The only condition would be no re-racks allowed. I suppose I would allow a spotted white ball to be used in this format, assuming a reasonable royalty percentage agreement with Will Snooker Tour could be agreed. Who would win? Ronnie, of course. I really hope you're doing a third joint Christmas special with Talking Snooker. Either way, can you give your top book, movie and podcast again? Well, the the big news there, Christine, there's been a lot of negotiations. The two teams... From both sides, the two podcasts have, have met in secret, um, I believe a London location, and the, the deal has been hammered out, and there will be, I can, can confirm, there will be a third joint podcast over Christmas. Um, it goes on so long, it'll probably still be going at Easter, but there will be a, a joint podcast, so all, all those uh, elements uh, will be uh, will be there. Um, I'm not sure that cushion torment is going <laughs> to happen, but it's an interesting idea. Sean Murphy's maximum in the shootout was the standout moment. Um, we'll come on to the shootout now. That second day tends to drag a little because the first round, because only a four day event, the first round lasts two days, which is kind of feels too long in a way. That's just the, the way the format is. And it was dragging a bit. And his was the last match of the afternoon. It needed kind of something to happen. There weren't many close matches. And my word, he provided it. And it was, it was a sensational, um, break. You know, my opinion is every maximum is brilliant. There is different context, obviously. I mean, Mark Selby made one in the world final, which, you know, puts him very high in the list of, you know, impressive maximums. Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the five minute, eight seconds one was just incredible. And there have been many others where someone's had to pot a great last black or there's been a recovery shot or or, or just the, the sort of situation in the tournament. But what Sean did was unique, obviously, to do it under that those rules and that format and the crowd and, and all, all the rest of it. And really, he's kind of the perfect player for that, I think, because he's always embraced the event. He actually said at one point, sort of late on, is anyone else getting nervous? You know, so he acknowledged what he was doing, but he acknowledged the fact that he was a bit of a different thing with the crowd there and, 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 and the rules and, and whatever. Um, I thought it was brilliant. Neil Robertson didn't seem to think so. <laughs> he went on social media um, and said it had been made in a circus and that it, it, you can't compare it to making it in a final or at the crucible. Uh, Neil Robertson, who once made a maximum in a final, the UK Championship, and also made one at the crucible. So, so it seems to slightly be sort of bringing himself into it. Um, I didn't think he needed to get involved. I think it's fine for him or anyone else to think the shootout is a circus, to not want to play in it, and indeed to not play in it. That's fine. But leave the tournament alone in that case. That break uh, of Murphy's, that 147, Will Snooker Tour on their, on their Twitter page alone, it got 1.4 million views. Okay, it was in all the newspapers, it went viral in the best sense of the word. It put that tournament on the map, it created great excitement and publicity for Snooker. 
There was nothing bad about it. There was nothing negative about it. And I think players kind of need to see the bigger picture. Neil Robertson, I don't really know what's happening with him because we were told he wasn't going to play in tournaments in December because he was homesick and was going to go to Australia. But he was actually in Finland doing an exhibition with Mark Selby. Um, so he's not in Australia. Now, I assume he's going there soon, but we're already a third of the way through the month. Um, he's a player who's 86th on the one-year list. He's projected end-of-season rankings 30. At the moment, it looks very likely he'll have to qualify for the Crucible unless he, he does something in the German Masters. I mean, he's a, he's a long way on the provisional rankings and we're taking points off, obviously, that he's earned from a brilliant stellar season two years ago. He's a long way off on on those provisional rankings and getting in the top 16. He would need maybe to win the German Masters, possibly you know, even the Welsh Open as well. And then there's the World Open in China. He's not going to be in the Player Series events, um, or certainly not the first one, the World Grand Prix, because the cut-off of that is the Scottish Open. He's not playing in it. So, you know, he's in a bit of a bind at the moment. Um I hope he turns it round, personally, but I also thought it was unwise of him to say that about Murphy's maximum because it was just good for the game. Um, and he didn't need to get involved. He just chose to, anyway. His choice, obviously, would never tell people not to have opinions, but I think sometimes players need to see the bigger picture a little bit. Um, anyway, that's uh, thank you for that email. And The shootout it was an interesting week. As I say, early on... <laughs> I came up with some ideas after the last shootout, which were ignored, of course, <laughs> on how to slightly just change it in the in the weekday afternoons. I think that it's always quiet and literally quiet. You know, the, the people weren't many people in really. Great venue, the Swansea Arena, but it didn't sort of fill up until the Friday and Saturday. My idea for the first couple of weekday afternoons is to get local schools involved. It's supposed to be a sort of gateway for younger fans to get into snooker. They might not want to sit and watch a best of 19, but these 10-minute matches and the sort of hoopla might appeal to them. So why not just bus in local schools, you'll fill the arena, it'll be a different feeling rather than aiming everything at sort of 50-year-old white men who like to shout unfunny things out, which a lot of the shootout is, frankly. (laughs) You know, it's the same old stuff. Even the audience seemed a little bored with the same old chants and the same old stuff. Let's try and move it on a bit. I had the idea of giving the audience, like you get in the darts, a bit of card and a pen, write something amusing on it, whatever. Acknowledge the fans a bit more. This has been my mantra for a while now. Tweet from your seat was another idea I had. You know, where you sat, where you're from, who you're supporting. We'll put it on the big screen between matches. There's always a couple of minutes on the ad break to do that. Put it on the social media. Just make it a bit different. I I think my criticism is that it hasn't moved on in terms of a spectator event, the TV format works, I think, but in terms of a spectator event, it hasn't moved on. It's the same old stuff, and I think they need to look at that and need to do a bit of work in, in making it a different experience. And one thing they can certainly do in the afternoons is get a younger audience. Um, the last day was great. It was packed. Um, it was mainly good-natured, I think. Um, obviously, people you know, did, did take a drink, and that's kind of encouraged there. So that's that's up to them. But uh, it was a good tournament. Mark Allen um, has become the first top 16 player to win it. He was actually the top seed. Um, it's described as a lottery. I understand why, but there are actually a lot of players in it who will, who will never win it because they're not smart enough. <laughs> Mark Allen's a very smart player. He said himself he didn't play flawless snooker, but he made good decisions. So if he broke down, he played good safety. He didn't leave easy chances. Um, you know, he just didn't didn't do anything daft, really, which is half the battle in that tournament because a lot of people do do daft things um, and we've had uh, Joe Richards 
has written in about the uh, the shootout. He said it seems to have been a big success again. I was away all last weekend, so unfortunately I didn't watch anything other than highlights. Murphy's break was insane. I still can't believe that it actually happened. Murphy is such a phenomenal talent. I feel like he's his own worst enemy at times. He dips in and out of supreme form. Just says he's not right mentally. Maybe he should get a sports psychologist like Ronnie. He seems so level-headed these days and laid back. Maybe he needs to find some dogged determination. It's almost like he knows deep down he doesn't need it now. He's got his podcast and commentary. I'm not sure I agree with that, Joe. I think Sean is a very competitive character. He's just a, he's just sort of because he's gracious uh, in defeat. Don't think it doesn't hurt. I think it does. I think that you know, away from doing the right thing, which he does in the arena. I think it does annoy him, <laughs> and I think he still very much sees himself as a player. Um, he says, uh, Joe says, Murphy's good mate Mark Allen, he's really finding some form again. I wonder if one of these two will be there come Sheffield again. My main point was regarding the shootout being a ranking tournament. I used to be dead against it, but I can see that it takes some bottle and skill to win the tournament under pressure. I just don't understand how it can have different rules but still be a professional ranking event. The ball in hand uh, when there's a foul almost makes it seem like a spin-off version of the sport. I can accept the shot clock as that's just limiting time. But to have ball in hand instead of the misrule is strange. I get it makes sense from the quick-fire tournament point of view, but you can't just change the core rules. Surely there has to be some sort of debate about what is allowed to constitute a tournament being allowed to be a professional one. Have a great Christmas. Well, you too, Joe. What I would say about that is, <clears throat> I completely understand the point you're making, but actually I've got the official rule book, okay? And the shootout rules are in there as a variant... Uh, rules of snooker so the shootout rules are enshrined in the official rules of snooker it's just a different version of the game um you know but they're in there and they're there for everyone to see um the thing about being a ranking event i mean that's been going on for a long time i said when it was announced i didn't agree with it if it was up to me i would actually take away the ranking points because i think it would be more of a fun event for the players if they're not sweating on points having said all of that you know, Stephen Hallworth, um, who I've come to know well working with him on commentary and come to like a lot, he, of course, as an amateur, got to the semi-finals. Now, had he won the shootout, those ranking points would have changed his life. They would have changed his career because he would have got on the tour through it, through the one-year list. He'd have got in the World Grand Prix. It would completely have transformed his entire career because it's a ranking event. And that would have been brilliant, actually. Um, and that's something that the shootout can do. Um Stephen lost in the semi-finals, but you know the eight thousand points there is not going to make as much difference because for one year list he needs to get in other events, obviously, and, and that's not easy. You're relying on people not playing, um, so that's an argument. It's a different sort of argument, but it's an argument for it being a ranking event. Um, in the end, Mark Allen winning it has kind of not made much difference, has it? Because he you know wins tournaments anyway, so it's not like Chris Wakelin winning it last year and having that massive sort of boost. Um, but anyway, the people have their own views on that, I'm sure. One thing I wanted to mention while I was saying about moving the event on, they had came up with a good idea, actually, on the first day, uh, Christmas, because it's obviously December, Christmas jumper day for the Jesse May charity. That's World Snooker Tour's official charity. But as far as I can see, they announced it on the morning of the event. You need to give people more time than that. Why not announce it a week before? <laughs> people, Some people, you know, have already travelled to Swansea. They won't have seen the tweet. It wasn't widely publicised. It wasn't on the website at all. It was just on social media. So a good idea, but let people know in advance. Don't announce it on the day. There weren't many people wearing Christmas jumpers because they didn't get the memo. That's To me, that just seems a basic thing. You know, you need to get right. Yes, it's a good idea. Give people notice. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't get that at all. Overall, though, I thought the shootout came across well. 
I noticed as well, World Snooker Tour, they did, I, I, I sort of have been banging this drum about getting the fans front and centre. They did do a feature with fans at the venue uh, on social media, which was good. So it's good to see. Uh, it would have been nice maybe to see some of the area. This is another thing I think we could we could utilise more where we actually go. I mean, we were in Edinburgh this week for the Scottish Open. Now, Edinburgh, like York actually, is one of the most picturesque and interesting sort of historical cities in Britain. How much of it are we going to see? The actual sites of Edinburgh? Because that's an enticement for me, and York is very much the same. It's an enticement to go to the event. You're not just watching the snooker. You're in a good, nice place. And these are the attractions when the snooker's not on or between sessions you could go to. To me, that seems like an obvious thing to flag up. So I'll be interested, okay? It's a seven-day event. How how much of Edinburgh on World Snooker's content are we going to see? Okay, they're there all week. What are we going to see in Edinburgh? Or are we just going to see people stood by the table and by the advertising board and basically indoors? Um, it's an opportunity. Not every place you go to, frankly, you want to see. <laughs> but Edinburgh and York and Swansea, there will be places that there's a lot you can see outside. One thing on the shootout I want to say as well, one person I think who deserves credit is Phil Seymour, the MC, Because that is a tough gig. You've got so many players to introduce. You've got to come up with something about all of them. And obviously... You know, they're going to play several times, so you've got to try and come up with something interesting each time. Uh, he christened Stephen Hallworth a Lincolnshire sausage, <laughs> which is an extraordinary nickname, and will stick, I'm sure. He didn't quite bring home the bacon in the end, because he lost in the semis, but anyway, that's a separate thing. But Phil did a good job there. That's not easy, and it's, obviously you've got the raucous crowd. You had to conduct the draws at, at times as well. So, um, you know, every credit to him. I mean, the MCs, they, they all do a good job, because it's all about making it... You're sort of the first person as a spectator you'll see in the arena. You go in, you take your seat, the MC comes out, and they have to basically be welcoming and and impart that sort of gratitude that you paid your money to come. And they all do that. Rob Walker does it, Tahir Hajat does it, and Phil Seymour does it as well. Um, and it's quite an important role, that. And, you know, some tournaments are harder than others. So I just wanted to mention that. Will Britton. Uh, that's not a question, that's his name, Will Britton. Uh Great work this past year on the box with both ITV and Eurosport. I always enjoy the coverage. Thank you, Will. He says, I was just wondering, regarding schedule and formats for certain tournaments, uh, the more likely schedule. I noticed that since the Home series, home Nation Series was introduced, that on quarterfinals day, the afternoon session is played on the one table, whilst in the evening both tables are in action, even since the number of players at these events has reduced. Can I ask why is, why is this the case? Surely it would make more sense to have both tables in action for both sessions, as it seems a bit unfair for the two players on table two that they don't get the TV exposure and experience, especially in such a big stage of the tournament. Whereas the British Open does have both tables in action on quarterfinals day. Uh, similar to where the ITV events, World Grand Prix and Players Championship, we have two quarterfinals on two tables and one semi-final on the same day. I don't think this is fair, as the other two players in the second semi-final get the one-table setup. Would it not make sense to start these particular events on the Monday afternoon rather than the evening? Anyway, not, I'm not complaining, I'm just wondering. Have a great Christmas, I look forward to more in 24. Well, Will, thank you for the question. I mean, the quarterfinals at the Home Nations, they've always been like that. Years ago, at the Welsh Open, they tried playing the quarterfinals one after another. So they started, at ten, well, actually, they weren't one after another. This was the problem. They started, it was like 10, 1, 4 and 7. And what happened was, they stuck to that. Rather than roll on, roll off, which might have worked, they stuck to that. So the first match at 10 o'clock was over quite quickly, but they waited till 1 to start the second one. And that's obviously to do with TV as well. And then we had two really long matches. So the last match 
didn't start till half ten at night, a best of nine. And Marco Fu had to be woken up to go and play his match. He was waiting to play, he was waiting since seven to go and play, three and a half hours. It wasn't ideal. So they don't want to risk that again. Um, and also, you know, it's a much longer day production-wise if you come on air at ten in the morning and on air, on air all day. Because if you come on air at ten in the morning, people have to be there from half seven and they're going to be there probably till midnight. That's just too long for the for the production team. So you have, as you're quite right, you have the match starting at 12, then you have another match, and then you have the two matches at night. Um, and that's to stop a ridiculously late finish. Um, it, obviously, it's unfortunate for the people on table two, but they're still, you know, they're in that arena. It's, it's shown on streaming with commentary. It's not completely out of the way. Um, I suppose it feels odd that there's one quarter final that doesn't have the same attention as the others. The reason they don't play two in the afternoon simultaneously is because you're losing out on airtime then. You, you obviously, two matches back to back, you get more snooker. Um, so uh, it may not be perfect, but I think it's, I actually think it's better than the two and two format, um, that, that, that you, that you, um, that you mentioned. The ITV events, the, the schedule is, is determined by the fact that on the Saturday afternoon, there's usually racing, sometimes other sport that's taking the slot on ITV4. So there's usually not snooker on that Saturday, on that Saturday afternoon. And so the, the, the sort of format is retrofitted to that. That's why it starts on the Monday night. Um, so that's just, again, it's, 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 it's fitting in with the, the demands of the broadcasters. Every broadcast has a different, um, sort of set of demands depending on the way they're set up, I suppose. Um, I don't think it's a big deal personally. Um, but you know, yeah, you, you put your views forward and thank you for that. Cameron Hunt says, uh, I love the podcast. Thank you. After watching the Edge of Everything and the Courage of the UK Championship, it's apparent how massive the mental side of snooker is. With this in mind, what are your opinions on bringing in a sports psychologist to the Pundridi team to give their expert insight into the player's body language and the pressure or confidence they could be feeling between frames or sessions? Well, it's not the worst idea. I think I think you'd have to do that sparingly. Um, I think quite often, though, you know, and yes, I'm not <laughs> in any way... Um, dismissing sports psychology, but I think often it's apparent very, very much to viewers how people are feeling. You can see in a player's body language often how they're feeling. Um, and I suppose, it, it, you know, how much would there be left to say, I suppose, um, from, even from a professional standpoint? But yeah, I mean, it, it would be, I mean, if Dr. Steve Peters was available and, and wanted to come on board and give his views, I'm sure we'd love to hear them. Um, it, it is a massive part of it. You're right. The mental side of snooker. I suppose it never used to be talked about that much, but it's it's obvious now. And the Ronnie O'Sullivan documentary, The Edge of Everything, brought it home. Just what a massively difficult sport it is to handle mentally at the, at the top level, and um, that's why so many of them do turn to these people because you know they need that that kind of help at times. Now, Jorit writes, uh, "I'm listening to your podcast from York. Excellent. It makes my work go faster. Thank you. Well, we we." Uh, we aim to please. Uh, you told again how difficult, difficult and costly it is to put a tournament on in new countries. Does World Snooker Tour know where the most online Eurosport subscriptions are or where the gambling is high? That probably makes such choices easier. Although in Holland, where I live, sponsoring sports clubs, etc. by gambling companies is forbidden in a few years. Is that the case in the UK? Snooker will be in trouble, I guess, then. Funny thing, snooker is not big in Holland. Only small news when the World Championship or the UK is on, for example. But last Thursday... On the train between Cromany and Assen-Delft and, and Wormerveer, and I'm sure I've pronounced all of those uh, towns wrong, uh, he says, I spotted a couple in the train watching Snook on the Eurosport app. 
while I was listening to your first short podcast. I guess not everything goes wrong in Holland nowadays. Uh, it's a new, new government, I believe, but uh, we'll gloss over that for now. He says, I'm looking forward to the shootout while I'm, a, while I'm on a specially booked holiday in Egmond Amzee with my wife. She doesn't like snooker, but always beats me with the prediction contest on snooker.org. That shows what a strange sport it is. Well, <laughs> there are many things that show that. Um, yes, I mean, yes, you're asking about, um, well, the gambling firms, would, would the sponsorship be outlawed? I think if there was a Labour government, it would be more likely. They outlawed uh, tobacco sponsorship, and I think now people look back on that and, and say they were right. Um, I think even the Conservatives might move towards that in the future, but um, we'll see. There'll be an election in the next year or so. Um, and we had another email. I'll, I'll, I'll answer your point because we had another email on this from Joe McPherson. He says, thanks for reading my previous email on your last podcast. Thank you, Joe. He lives in Hungary. He says, I, I saw recently Neil Robertson and Mark Selby played a big exhibition in Finland. This was during a Will Snooker Tour event, the shootout. Yet it, yet it didn't create any controversy, as Macau did. I'm just curious for your thoughts. On this note, there was a four-night exhibition in Hungary earlier this year with Mark Allen and Ronnie O'Sullivan. All nights were sold out quickly, and it shows there's a huge appetite for snooker in Hungary. Budapest has recently held Athletics World Championships, PDC darts events and more. It will be a great option for a snooker ranking event. Yeah, well, so... There's a couple of points here. One on sort of locations for tournaments. I mean, yeah, they do have data, Will Snook, I'm sure, on, on, on where people are watching and they'll get data from um, their own kind of mailing list and, and interactions and so on. And, and, and certainly on Facebook, and, 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 and which is a massive success, by the way, Facebook for Will Snook. A credit to them for building that, that whole page up. They um, Within a couple of years, they, they went from a million to over two million and it's growing all the time. So... Um, the good people who, who, who work on that are doing a good job, but they they got all the data, so I'm sure they look at that. But it, it's not always as simple as that. It costs a lot of money to put a tournament on. You know, a ranking event will cost a million quid at least. You know, you've got to hire the venue, pay all the associated staging costs, pay the prize money, which for a ranking event has to be high. So you're not always going to get that back in ticket sales, even in a country where the sport's popular. For me personally, and again, you know, there's lots of reasons why this won't happen, but I would like to see. A kind of European series where you take, and it would have to be top players. It wouldn't be everyone on tour necessarily, but you would you would take players to test the water in these countries. So Finland is, has been mentioned, and I know I know Stuart Bingham went there, did an exhibition, said how popular it was. Mark Williams went there, and Neil and Mark have been there recently, as you say. Hungary, where you live, lots of these European countries, and maybe you know have a weekend tournament, have a have a smaller tournament. They used to do the old European tour events, you know, which was actually for the whole tour. They were popular. Um, but you know, it's not as easy as that. It costs money, and it was interesting. Steve Dawson did say in that interview with Stephen Hendry they're looking to expand the the, the reach of countries they take tournaments to. Europe is an obvious um, place to go, but it has to pay for itself. You can't be losing fortunes doing it um, because that's irresponsible. Um, but uh, on the point now, you make the point here about the yeah the exhibition. Why was that allowed? I think the issue with Macau, and Steve Davis said this on the BBC. It was going to be televised. Um, so Will Snooker Tour couldn't countenance a televised event going out at the same time as a televised ranking event. The exhibition Neil and Mark did, <coughs> it was it seemed to be well attended. They agreed to not post any social media footage until the shootout finished. So it was just after the shootout finished on Saturday night, Neil Robertson put a video up and it looked great. It was packed and, you know, it looked a good thing. But in that way, it didn't impede on the event. They hadn't entered the shootout. 
this kind of gives the lie to the idea that, that you know, that Will Snooker overreacted and were, were threatening to players. Not really true. They are allowed to do exhibitions. But the, 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 the problem with the Macau one was that it was going to be televised at the same time as a world ranking event. And therefore, they put their foot down over it. And it's still going to be on. It's going to be on over Christmas. So the players that actually haven't missed out. Um, there's going to be two actually over Christmas. And, you know, I think it's a balancing act. I think players, it's good that they go around doing exhibitions to, to promote the, 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 the circuit. Selby and Robertson didn't want to play in the shootout. That's entirely up to them. But the exhibition they did in Finland didn't detract from the shootout because they just did it for the people there and then afterwards publicised it. And that seems quite sensible, really, you know, if you're looking at it objectively. Um, so hopefully that answers the, the point. Just going back to Sean Murphy's maximum, Philip in Germany... Philip Hafner in Frankfurt, he says, I'm a long-time listener, first-time emailer. Thank you for your insights. I get so much joy out of your podcast. Well, that's kind of you, Philip. So a question regarding Sean's 147 in the shootout. Do you happen to know what the official time of the maximum is? Surely it must be second quickest after Ronnie's 5 minutes 20. I also wonder if Sean's average shot time in the shootout maximum could serve as a proxy for Ronnie's back in the day when there was no real measurement of average shot time. Could it have been around 10 seconds, maybe? Um... The, there isn't an official time of the break. The frame lasted, I think, seven and a half minutes. He got in early, so I'm guessing it was... Unless, I mean, someone... You know, I could have done this myself, I know, but you could time it, obviously, on YouTube. But the break's around seven minutes, I'm guessing. Um, I don't know if that's second or not, because there aren't official timings for all the maximums. But obviously, <laughs> the very nature of the shootout, it had to be made quickly. Um, Ronnie's uh, in 97, that five minutes, eight seconds... It seems actually even more incredible now um, than it was then. It's as it, time passes because no one's come close to doing that again in that time. It seems otherworldly in some way, but um, but it happened. Just to say, we did have a, a question actually in I can't remember whether I read it out or not, but they were asking about John Skilbeck's book Goody Two Shoes, which is about the 1982 World Championship. John came on with uh, Luke Williams and Brendan Cooper, who'd also written books um, in the summer, to discuss it. And they're asking, this email is asking, when's it coming out? It's going to be out, John actually emailed me, it's going to be out in early 2024, so look out for that. It's an excellent read. Um, we're, we're towards wrapping up, but I want to just see if we can get a couple more in, because, uh, oh yes, now we had a, an email about uh, ranking the different players, and uh, we had different ways people have sort of ranked it and Hugh Grant not that one has written in he said um, as you know one of the most frequently baited questions in the super community is who are the best players of all time this is a, an emotive subject I find that most fans simply choose their favourite player rather than applying some serious analysis of the skills the player demonstrated during their career I think there's some truth in that Hugh I think there's a bit of retrofitting people look for the for the metric that's going to favour the people they like which you know I suppose is inevitable anyway says another challenge is that it requires comparing players from different eras despite the balance of skills required to be a consistent winner today being different to previous eras for example many Stephen Hendry fans firmly believe Stephen is undoubtedly the best player of all time however although I was a huge fan of Stephen in the 90s I humbly suggest that the balance of skills required to be a consistent winner today is very different to the era when Stephen dominated the, the sport during that era, Stephen was clearly head and shoulders above his competitors, but he didn't really need to deviate from his natural aggressive approach. See, I'm running out of breath here. I've been talking for nearly an hour and a half. <laughs> anyway, I'll uh, continue. She says, I believe that if Stephen had been born five years later and started his professional career at the same time as the class of 92, he would have needed to adopt a more balanced approach and strengthen his cubal control and safety game. 
Consequently, I humbly suggest that if Stephen's skills are purely rated on the skills that he demonstrated during his prime, then it would be difficult to justify him reaching the top three. In my view, in order to rate Stephen in the top three, you would need to make assumptions about how he would have adapted his approach and developed his skills to compete in today's game. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all agree on a common methodology for assessing the greatest players of all time? I know that you've shared your thoughts on this in the past, and I expect that when you did so, you most likely applied various criteria when making your assessments. Anyway, for what it's worth, the table below outlines my technical analysis of the top seven players of all time. My rationale is outlined within the table, i.e. I've rated each player on four key skills, applied weighting to each skill, and the overall scores reflect the total weighted score for each player. I'd be interested in your thoughts on the co- on those criteria and any other criteria you may think I should have included. For example, I did consider longevity as a criteria, but I wasn't sure how to do that <coughs> properly. For example, Jimmy White has been playing professionally for over 40 years, but his standard of play for the last 20 has obviously been much lower than he demonstrated in his prime. So perhaps longevity is too difficult to incorporate. I'd also be interested in your thoughts on whether it's appropriate to make assumptions about how the players may have adapted their approach and developed their skills to compete in today's game. Keep up the great work, Dave. I listen to your commentary on your podcast religiously. Hugh Grant there. Thank you, Hugh. I would say, before I get onto your list, I would say that I think you can only judge people actually in their time. So I don't think it's right to, for example, Ray Reardon to say, well, he would have struggled today. We don't know because he's not playing today. I mean, he just made a century, actually, (laughs) recently at the age of 91 um, at a club in Torquay. But um, he dominated his time. So he was a great of his time. I suppose then you compare his time to later times and you say, OK, it got more competitive, you know, in, into the early 90s. So therefore, maybe he loses points for that. But, it, it, you know, it's you can only a player can only play when they play. And that, that includes Stephen Hendry, includes anybody. But anyway, on to Hugh's uh, list. Now, he's, he's four key areas here. I'm not going to read every every number out because it's just a blizzard of numbers then. But he's, he's got four areas that he's ranked the players on. OK, so we've got potting. Cue ball control, safety play, and mental strength. And he's weighted each one, so he's given 30% to potting, 25% each to cue ball control and safety play, and 20% to mental strength. He's given seven players a mark out of 10 in each one. And so this is the top seven, according to Hugh, in reverse order. Number seven, Neil Robertson, has got an overall score of 8.3. Number six, Judd Trump, has got an overall score of 8.6. Number five, Stephen Hendry, has got an overall score of 8.75. Number four, Mark Williams has got an overall score of nine. Number three, Mark Selby is 9.15. Number two, John Higgins is 9.25. And number one, Ronnie O'Sullivan has been given an overall score of 9.5. That is Hughes' uh, personal um, weighting, and he he worked it all out uh, with his own opinions, and that is it. Ronnie O'Sullivan has come top of that list. I think Ronnie, you know, for most people, is top of the list anyway. Um, but uh, there's actual methodology to the way Hugh has done it. Because people do have other ways of ranking players, and uh, Matt Tarrant has written, he says, your Saturday special got me thinking. You suggested Stephen Hendry uh, could be the leading snooker broadcaster and asked for a top ten of players using our own criteria. So here goes with my top ten broadcaster players. Okay, so the, he says, I've gone for pundit commentators that I've most enjoyed who have won tournaments or played in the final stages of the World Championship. This precludes Clive... Everton, who is, in my opinion, the ultimate snooker broadcaster. No disrespect to number 10. I've enjoyed listening to all of those listed below. Well, it's not really number 10, is it? It's, I suppose it's the people who, who didn't make the cut. But anyway, this is Matt Tarrant's top 10 players who are also broadcasters, OK? In reverse order, number 10, Jimmy White. Number 9, Stephen Hendry. Number 8, Joe Johnson. Number 7, John Pullman. 
Number six, John Virgo. Number five, John Parrott. Number four, Dennis Taylor. Number three, Steve Davis. Number two, Willie Thorne. And number one is Neil Folds. So Neil, top of the list there. And, uh, well, there's a lot of, uh, of course, candidates for that. I mean, John Spencer was someone I, I love listening to, uh, sort of growing up watching snooker. Uh, but everyone will have their own views on that, of course. Uh, and, uh, yeah, well, let us know. If you've got, if you've got a way of ranking the players, it doesn't have to be mathematically worked out as uh, Hugh did with the, the different categories. It can literally just be, you know, you like the look of them or anything, whatever it is, um, or one of them stop, you know, the, the best 10 selfies you've got with players, whatever it is, we'll take anything. And that's our motto on this podcast. We'll take anything. We have to end there. So if your email has not been read out, it's nothing personal. Um, but uh, the Scottish Open lies ahead of us. It's been a great time for snooker. And I think there's good news coming as well with various other announcements. Um, you know, I think what happens during the season, if there's a sort of period where there's no play, even for a week, People start sort of, <laughs> with time on their hands, sort of dwelling on things. But actually, when the tournaments are on, you, you're just reminded what a great sport it is. We are bucking the trend in terms of audience numbers, both live, um, to the ticket sales and broadcast figures. It's a very healthy moment, I think. Uh, the UK Championship was a success. The shootout was a success. Um, you have to credit the promotion of both, I think. There's always more that can be done. But things are going well, basically, um, and long may that continue. And uh, we sort of moving into the new year. Now, there's two more episodes left this year. So uh, if you've got any queries or questions, um, anything you've heard this week or anything that you see during the Scottish Open, get them in by end of play Sunday. So after the final, because I'll be recording the next episode uh, the Monday after the Scottish Open. And then after that, it's the Christmas special with Nick Metcalf and Phil Haig from Talking Snooker. Um, which is always uh, a lively affair and a long affair, let's be honest. Um, but we're looking forward to that. And then that'll be it for this year. So um, that's it, really. Thanks for listening. Snookerscenepodcast.mail.com is the address to send correspondence to. That's snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. The Scottish Open is the last event of the year. It's in Edinburgh. It's going to be a good week, I'm sure. Um, looking forward to it. It's on Eurosport, Discovery Plus, and in the UK, DMAX, which is a freeview channel, so people have, someone wrote in a few weeks ago lamenting it's not on Quest but it's actually D-Max I think is the next channel down so it'll be there the final will be live on there but um, that's it we're looking forward to that but so thanks for everyone for listening it's been a long episode apologies for that I was trying to get everyone's uh, correspondence in and uh, that's it as we always say until next time goodbye bye Sports Social Podcast Network It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.